All righty, let's, uh, let's get at it, shall we? John Scholes here always, and Lior Samfiru uh, is alongside making you that much smarter over the next hour, so here is the opportunity for you to uh, to join in and learn something. You can simply sit back and listen for the hour, which is always a good plan every week. Uh, you have another option of going to the website and learning, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. You can always call Lior and his team at one eight five five eight. To one fifty nine hundred any time anything uh, that uh, revolves around the orbit of your job and your employment that is what we discuss making that much smarter. There's always things to be learned and always things to discover when it comes to your work life. The main topic, one of two actually, the employer's obligation or probably the employee's obligation to accommodate based on family status. We're going to get to a lot of those talking points in just a bit, but there's always the uh, the matter of the week that was the case of the day, pal. What do you got going on? Hey, Johnny, great to be here on this uh, Saturday morning to talk about employment Mm -hmm. law, of course. You know, we may have a bit of a break from work, uh, many of us this weekend, but work is coming back after the weekend when we need to be prepared. We need to know what to do if the week prior wasn't great or if we think something's going to come down, our job may be in jeopardy or our job is changing. Well, now we have some time to kind of think about it, talk about it, and have a plan of action. And it can start by calling the show right now. Call the show, ask the question, what to do, whether what your employer is doing is legal. If you've lost your job, your job is changing, you're not being treated properly, you're being relocated, whatever the issue is, I promise you there are solutions, there's answers, and you can have a plan in place to deal with it. So don't be bashful. If you want to know about your rights, even if you're just curious and you've always wondered something, well, don't wonder anymore. Just call and we'll tell you. And of course, if you want me to roll up my sleeves and my team to, to get up, get to work on your behalf to get this, these issues resolved, we'll give you that contact information from my office throughout the show so we can have that private chat as well. But let's uh, start with a couple of situations that came across my desk this week. Uh, first, Matt, I'll tell you about. I spoke uh, with uh, a gentleman. He, the business that he uh, was working for, he's been working for for quite a few years, had sold, uh, or the company announced it's being sold. And after a while, he found out that he's being made a job offer by the buyer. The company that's buying the business was offering him a job. The key, though, the the, the downside was that all the employees are going to have to relocate to the new company's offices, which were 90 minutes away. Obviously a big deal. So this person uh, called me and he asked, well, I mean, I don't want to do this if I don't do this. Do I get any severance because my employer is telling me that if I don't take this job, then I've resigned and I don't get anything. So he, of course, he wanted to know the, the truth. And here's the truth. The truth is that regardless of the relocation, if he chose not to take the job with the buyer, he'd be entitled to severance. Now, if he did not have a good reason, he just didn't feel like it then he wouldn't get his full severance. He would only get a portion of it, his minimum amounts, which for him would have been about eight weeks. But because he has a good reason, in this case, it's the fact that they're relocating 90 minutes away, he actually gets his full severance, which is right around 12 months for him. So this is an important thing to remember, generally speaking, with a relocation. When a company relocates, they move or they want to move you, if it's generally more than an hour away or if it's going to increase your commute by more than an hour, that's not something that they can impose on you. And if you refuse to do that, the law would consider that to be a a termination, a constructive dismissal. It's not a resignation. So in this case, yeah, 90 minutes, huge deal. That would have been three hours more a day, an hour and a half each way. 
So no, he doesn't have to accept it. He's going to get his full severance. And I've seen this very often, John, with sales of business. Company says, well, if you're not accepting a job with the buyer, you've resigned. You don't get anything. Nonsense. Of course you do. The reason is as to why you refuse is going to play a part into the amount of severance, but you do get severance. So if your business is sold, you do have options, of course. Always call me to know what those options are. Don't just sign an employment agreement with that buyer that may limit your entitlements. You want to be mindful of that as well. Let's always talk in a sale of a business situation. Getting on the uh, the horse early and going with it. Nina, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. What's uh, what's your concern? Well, my concern is I was terminated effective immediately, which was January 5th, after seven and a half years employment, and I was given kind of package to, to uh, go out with, 10 weeks pay, and uh, my benefits went on until March 19th. I was there for seven and a half years. Does that seem like it's a, a good deal? It's not even close to being a good deal, uh, Nina. And, and you were there for seven and a half years. What kind of a job were you doing there? It's retail. Retail? And how old are you? I am 62. So the right number for you is right around eight months. It can even be nine months. Months, not weeks, months. Okay. Now, please tell me, I'm going to ask you a question, and please tell me the answer that I want, and that is that you didn't sign anything. I did not. I have it right in front of me, and it is not signed. All right. Well, I, I, I feel a lot better because I often get calls like uh, people that have signed, and then I have to tell them, sorry, I can't, I can't help you. You can't help the, me. I know, right? So I saw the paper on the desk, and I quickly just picked up both and walked out of the office. Well, you, you did the smart thing. So, no, it's not even close at, at 10 weeks. So, uh, and so it's not just, by the way, the pay. They have to continue your benefits for that period of time, for the for the eight months. So uh, what I want you to do, Nina, is I want you to give me a call in the office. We'll give you that number in a second. Let's you and I have a chat. And it's going to be, I promise you, very easy to get this resolved and get you the severance that you're actually owed. Excellent. So I do have a number, and it's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Wow, you got my job. There you go. That's the number. (laughs) Well, Ah. when I first called in, I couldn't get any advice. So I thought, okay, well, I have to call in on the radio show and find out because at $300 for the call, I, I just couldn't afford it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got the right number, and you've, uh, you're going down the right path, Nina, for sure. So uh, thank you for that. You can also send along an email to continue the conversation with Leorna's team, and that would be a help at employmentlawyer.ca. Yeah, you always, you're always just bracing for impact when you hear, oh, I did sign something or I didn't sign something, because that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of a deciding factor, right? Well, yeah, especially when she had said that she had been let go in January. So my concern right. was that in the meantime, she'd signed something, and, and I'm glad that she didn't. But John, Every single day, no exception. I get calls from people exactly in that situation, but after they've already signed. So please, please, please do as Nina does. Get advice before you uh, before you sign anything, because for her, that's the difference between ten weeks and nine months, and that's a very, very common situation. And get that advice quickly and surely right here now before you carry on afterwards with a phone call to Lior at the office, and that's 416-870-6400. That's how fast we make it happen here, just making people that much uh, that much smarter for sure. Okay, we're talking about accommodation, family status. A reminder for everyone as we get into this, pal, what is duty to accommodate? Break that down. Yeah, the duty to accommodate. Duty to accommodate is a very important legal obligation that an employer has to assist and support an employee in certain situations. Uh, so the most common duty or the, the most commonly comes up in the situation where an employee has medical restrictions and medical limitations. 
maybe an employee is sick or has some, some injuries or is dealing with some health issues, well, they may need some changes to their job. For example, modified duties, modified hours, and an employee has to make that happen. They have to support the employee. They have to uh, understand that there's uh, there's limitations, and they have to make that happen. So that duty to support an employee is a very important one under our human rights laws. And an employer has a duty to accommodate an employee if it touches on on one of several human rights uh, issues, such as disability or uh, or race or ethnicity or religion. So if you have a requirement, a, a need that needs to be accommodated based on one of those things, the employer can't just say no. The employer can't say we don't want to, can't say it's your problem. They have to find a way to support you and accommodate you. And if they don't, well, that's a human rights violation. It's a very, very big deal. What does it mean if it's based on family status? So another one of those bases, I give you the example, of course, of disability is family status. So generally speaking, if uh, uh, an employee is in a parent-child uh, type of a relationship, you have a, a child, and you need support to care for your children, there's a need that you have uh, to allow you to care for your children, well, that employer may have to provide that accommodation. If you need some flexibility at work to be able to do something for your child and to, to care for them, and I'm not talking to get them to their basketball game, but if, if we're talking about a situation where there's a, a need that the child needs from a care standpoint uh, and you're the one that provides it, the employer can't tell you, hey, you figure it out. It's your child. Don't worry. I don't really worry about that. No, no. The employer has to provide that accommodation. It's just as serious and just as important as if we were talking about a medical issue. And again, if the employer refuses to provide that support based on your, your family needs, then that, again, is a human rights violation. It's a big deal, and there could be some significant consequences to that employer. Well, you did mention the child care thing and accommodations and obligations in that regard. Obviously, the basketball game is a bit of a stretch, but give us some examples what that would be. <laughs> I imagine you know no one else would take them to child care, maybe, or drop them off, stuff like that, or where does it go? Yeah. The most common one has to do with uh, with taking kids to, to daycare or to school. So oftentimes, uh, you know, you may need you have to be the one taking your child to school. There's no one else. There's no necessarily significant other that is able to do it or another family member or friend. So you need some flexibility from your employer. Well, employer, I have to take my child to school uh, for uh, 9 o'clock, so it means I can't be here at 9 o'clock. I have to be here at 9.30. So the employer, you have to provide that accommodation to me. Or perhaps I need to be able to pick up my child at a certain time, so I need to leave work a bit early, so you need to help me adjust my schedule so I can care for that child. Now, there could be other situations, and I had a, a situation a number of years ago with someone that had a child that, was, uh, that, that had diabetes, and she had to be home at a certain time to administer a medication. So what that meant for her is she asked the employer to relocate her to one of their other offices that's closer to her home so she could be home on time. Initially, that employer said, no, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, as soon as I got involved and I reminded them of their obligation, they changed their mind very quickly. In that case, the accommodation that she needed is the ability to be home on time, and the employer was able to make it happen. So if they're able to make it happen, they have to make it happen. 
And with that, we're going to make that first break happen. We'll continue with the Employment Law Show. Stand by. And back out of here. After the show, you can always reach Lior and the team. There is a great website called pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Free, anonymous. It uh, covers a lot of what we talk about, most of what we talk about here on the show. Plus, you'll have access uh, freely and anonymously to the severance calculator, which does what it's told and been used by millions across the country. All this can be found pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We're talking about that duty to accommodate um, I mean, other than childcare obligations, we just covered that, uh, whether you have a sick child or uh, back and forth to daycare or school. Other examples of situations that may require an employer to accommodate that and, uh, of course, disability and, and sickness. What else uh, What else have you seen, Lior? Yeah, so it, I, uh, I really have seen many situations where uh, the, the schedule of the child changes. And during COVID especially, a lot of times parents were uh, – we're having difficulties finding uh, childcare and, and providing childcare. So in some cases, that may mean that the flexibility needed is the requirement to allow the person to work from home, to, to be uh, to care for their child. And you know, especially true in, ma- in major cities like Toronto, everyone will tell you that finding daycare is very difficult and it's not always possible. So if you're now, let's say, in between uh, daycares, you, you, you lost one daycare or, or you're looking for a daycare, and well, who's going to watch the child? Well, if you have the type of job that can be done remotely, not everyone does, but if you do, then one of the obligations the employer may have to to provide accommodation is by allowing you to work from home. We saw that during COVID, but it applies not just during COVID. And it's okay to tell your employer, listen, I don't have childcare right now. I'm working on it, but I, I'm a parent. I have a, a child that, that's young, so I have to, to be there for them. So please let me work from home. Now, that doesn't mean that the employer has to give you a completely different job, but if your job is, is can be done remotely, even with some support, then they have to do it. And if they don't, again, it's a failure to accommodate. Now, I understand that employers may say, well, you know, that, that makes it difficult for us, and why is that our problem? Well, I'm not going to debate whether it should be this way. What I'm going to tell you is that's just the way that it is. You know, on this show, I don't tell you what the law should be. I'm telling you what the law is. And the law is very clear that the employer has to provide that accommodation. Uh, and an employer that just says, no, no, I don't want to do it. Guess what? There are significant repercussions. Does the same thing apply at the other end of the scale if you're dealing with a sick, uh, sick or a disabled elderly uh, parent uh, as far as caregiving is concerned? Yes. So we're talking uh-huh. about, of course, a parent and child relationship. Well, it, goes both, it goes both ways, both in terms of your child, but also your parent. And a lot of us have uh, elder parents, parents that need more care right now. And if we're the care providers, we may need that flexibility for um, our, our employer to be able to care for those parents. So again, just like I said before, that may mean leaving a bit early or having the, the flexibility to sometimes take some time off so that I can be there to take my parent to a doctor's appointment or what have you. So that is equally as protected by law that the ability to deal with and help your parents than it is to deal and help your child. So again, this is where the spotlight goes on the employer and the employer has that very important duty to accommodate. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, this whole concept. Can you just walk into your employer gun's place and say, I need this, this, and this? Or does the employer have the right to say, okay, we have some accommodation room, but you know, try to figure things out on your own first before you come to me? Yeah? Is that right? This is very important. This is key to me when it comes to accommodation is that the first crack at figuring out a solution has to be, t- has to be taken by the employee. 
So you have to, as an employee, try to see if you can figure it out without the company's involvement. Mm -hmm. So if there's other childcare arrangements you can make, if there's someone else that can help you, then you can, you do need to at least try that. Okay, you can't say, well, the easiest thing for me would be if my company just let me do whatever I want. No, that, it doesn't work that way. But if you've tried, you, you've, you've reviewed your options, and there's really no other reasonable option to be able to do what you do, uh, what you need to do, you need your employer to support you. That's when that obligation comes. That's when the employer has to provide that, that duty to accommodate. So it's okay, by the way, for the employer to ask you, okay, well, we understand that we'll have to, to accommodate, but before we figure that out, tell me, why you need that accommodation. Tell me what you've tried uh, to, to uh, figure out on your own before you've come and, and talked to me. And that's absolutely fine to do that. So is there someone else that can, can uh, pick the child up? Is there someone else that can drop them off, etc.? But again, for many uh, parents, there just really isn't someone. Uh, There's just not that flexibility, in which case, again, that's where the employer has to step up, has to, not should, has to, and provide that accommodation and support the employee to allow them to provide that child care or that parent care obligations. So in the situation where that's been done, the uh, the employee has done their due diligence and there's no other option. They've gone to the employer and the uh, employers uh, had to relent and say, okay, we'll figure something out. Now they're doing it. They've got their accommodation status. Everything's, uh, everything's cruising along smoothly. How long does that employer have to accommodate that family need of an employee? Is there a time limit or just from here on, here we go? Well, they, they have to accommodate as long as that accommodation is possible and as long as that accommodation is needed. So, no, there's no time limit. It's not like the employer can say, okay, tell you what, we'll help you out for a few weeks and then you're on your own to figure it out. No. If the employer is able to continue to accommodate indefinitely, and, of course, as long as that need continues in the same way indefinitely for the employee, the employer has to accommodate. They have to provide that accommodation continuously. And an employer that doesn't do that say, well, we think a few weeks is enough. Again, it's a breach of human rights laws. Now, we're talking about a duty to accommodate. Remember that there is a limit mm-hmm. to that duty to accommodate. An employer doesn't have to uh, move you know, ev- everything in the factory to provide that accommodation. But we call this accommodation to the point of undue hardship. What that means is an employer is expected to accommodate even if it's hard, even if it's not easy, even if it, even if it costs some money. Now, of course, at some point it becomes too hard, too difficult, or too costly, in which case the employer doesn't, of course, have to go that far. But, John, what I've seen time and time again, unfortunately, over my years of practicing law, is employers don't go far enough. They don't go to that point of undue hardship. As soon as it's a bit a bit tricky, they say, no, 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 too far. And again, that's illegal. So every situation is different. And obviously, if the employer does feel that it's way too much, too hard, then we need to review that. But remember, it's not good enough to say that it's complicated or it's just not easy. Even if it's not easy, as an employer, you have to accommodate. You mentioned that word review in there, and that's, and that's what I wanted to ask you next. I mean, is, is it okay for the employer for every you know, few weeks, months, or whatever to kind of revisit this and say, uh, we still need all this, or can we go back to normal? You're making progress if things change, so on and so forth, right? Perfectly legitimate to do that, perfectly yeah. reasonable to do that. And by the way, that does, doesn't just apply in a situation of family status, can apply even in situations of a medical accommodation. Uh, uh, you know, if an employee has restrictions in terms of how they can work for medical reasons, it's okay for the employer to ask for an update every once in a while and saying, hey, has anything changed? Can we get a note from your doctor telling us, uh, you know, about this accommodation? Do, you, do we know how long you need it for? Are things improving? Absolutely reasonable because an employer should know those things. And same with uh, family status. 
perfectly reasonable for the employer to ask the employee, has anything changed? Are there any other options that are available to you? Now, an employer that, that goes overboard and every single day shows up at nine in the morning and says, has anything changed? Tell me right now. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's going overboard. That could, could go into the realm of harassment even. But yes, every once in a while to, to, to get an update, not only uh, is it allowed, I would consider that to be a responsible thing to do. Right. So definitely do that. Again, uh, accommodation based on family status is the uh, the overall chat we're having so far. We'll move on to something else shortly. But so you say we haven't even gotten that far. You have an employer that's dug in their heels and say, you know what? I know you might need this. You might need that. But uh, that's your problem, not mine, pal. I'm not going to do it. Then what do you do? Yeah. So oftentimes it comes from uh, you know a lack of understanding and appreciation of what the obligations are. So an employer that otherwise may not be a bad employer at all may just not appreciate and they think, well, that's not my problem. I never really believe that to be the case. So oftentimes in that situation, a reminder from me is all it's going to take. And I mentioned the story earlier with the, the lady who had the son that was uh, uh, that had diabetes and, and she needed support. As soon as I got involved and I sent the employer a letter, guess what? Within four days, that issue got resolved. Yeah, of course, we'll accommodate you. So that works really well. That's why I say if you're not being accommodated, whether it's based on family status or disability or religious reasons, that's another example. You know, I need to be able to leave work uh, every Friday at this time to make it to, to, to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever it is. Uh, that, that's accommodation. If your employer won't accommodate, let me talk to them. Let me send them a note very nicely reminding them of their obligations. Probably eight out of ten times, that's going to resolve the issue right there and then. Yeah. Ultimately, if the company still refuses to accommodate, well, there's various options here. Number one, that refusal to accommodate can be a constructive dismissal. An employer has that obligation to accommodate. If they don't do it, it's as if they've terminated your employment. You are owed severance. That's also a human rights violation. It could be damages owed under human rights legislation. So it's a very big deal, and an employer can't just ignore that. But if you're not being accommodated for whatever reason, give me a call. Let's talk about that. Oftentimes, the path of least resistance and the one that works best is me just being able to educate your employer so that they do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, you know, it's a couple of things you kind of touched on there are interesting too. You said, you know, based on a religious need, especially this month, that we're like second day into Ramadan, which is 30 days. So that that would be possibly, I'm sure you get phone calls. It might just be, you know, the, the exact definition of a temporary uh, accommodation need for whatever status. It's only going to be a month, but an employer would still have to do it based on where we are currently, right? Exactly. Yes, yeah. there, there would need to be accommodation there for for, uh, for again legitimate reasons. And again, depending on the situation, an employee may need to be home by a certain time, and depending on where they live, they may need to ability to leave work earlier. So that's absolutely fine. That's legitimate. And by the way, in some situations, we talk about religious accommodation. That's a discussion kind of uh, for another day. But in some cases, an employer may say, "Okay, well, I didn't really realize that." What you're telling me is part of the religion. You know, not right. everyone is a religious expert, so it's okay for the employer to say, "Well, I'm going to need a note from some religious leader in your community telling me that that's something that you need to do as part of the religion." A rabbi, a minister, a reverend, whoever the right person is in your religious uh, in your religion. So, uh, absolutely fine. And yes, definitely, uh, if if it's time limited, like with Ramadan, even more of a reason for the employer to accommodate because it's not forever. 
recruiting employees from another job. This is a fantastic topic. That's the one we're going to cover on the uh, bottom half of the show here. We'll take a quick break, get into that. We will continue with more of the Employment Law Show. Hang on. And we are back at it here. You can always reach out anytime beyond this hour, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And that website is built just for you. It's free. It's anonymous. And you'll learn a ton. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. There's also contact information from uh, from that launching point. Want to get into recruiting employees from another job. Just got a quick email from Barry. Says, guys, good morning. My colleagues and I just found out that the company we work for will be shutting down at the end of the month. The owner of the company told us that because there's only five, count them, five employees, well, well we don't get any severance. Are they right? You know, I, I'm, I'm chuckling because I got a very similar email to this uh, from someone right before we gone on air. And, and no, let, let's be very clear here. This is something that comes up often. No, it's not right. Not even close. The size of the company, the number of employees, the size of the company's payroll is irrelevant when it comes to your severance and it comes to your full termination entitlements. You're going to be owed the same amount whether you work for a company with five employees or 5,000 employees. Remember, the factors that go in to assessing what you're owed are your age, the type of job, and the length of your employment. So not the size of the company's payroll. So no, it's not true. And by the way, a lot of employers believe that. And, and, and there's misleading information that you can read online and various websites, even government websites, which... Again, if you're not sure exactly what they're referring to, it could be very misleading. So no, he's owed severance. And depending how long he's been there, that severance could be as much as 24 months pay. But it's an important question to answer and remind everyone that even if you're working for a tiny company and you're let go, you are owed your full severance. It's going to be measured in months. Even if you worked there for a few months, you're probably owed a few months severance. And if you worked there for a long time, you could be owed two years. Yeah, it's interesting. We often people I know they've they've called and they they have the last ten years they have trouble getting their head around that concept of the size. And we've often said you know it doesn't matter if it's Joe's Pizza on the corner or Pizza Pizza across the country. The calculation is the same. And if you were to go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, check out the severance calculator. Nowhere in there does it say how big is your company. It doesn't ask you that. That's not relevant. Absolutely no. not. If you're a, a manager at a small company or a huge company with three years of service and you're 50 years old, you're going to be owed the identical severance. Again, no. it's between those two companies. It does not matter. And, and it's not even that people think that they get less severance. Some people think that they get no, no severance, severance, zero, yeah. if they work for a small company. Wrong, false, so now you know the truth. All right, recruiting employees from another job. This has been happening all kinds of time over the last couple of years with things just ending up, people with COVID, people moving around, different jobs. But how common is it for companies, uh, contact employees that already have a job to, you know, come on over this side, you'll like it better over here? Happens very, very, very often nowadays. In fact, you know, back in kind of uh, in in the old days, because, you know, you and I, back in our days, John, that's uh, it. it it was much more common for employees to be the ones initiating a job move, mm-hmm. for employees to be, you know, working hard on their resume, sending it out everywhere, and going to to a bunch of interviews and hoping that someone makes them an offer. Well, these days things have changed somewhat. That still happens, but what we see often is employees that are being recruited, where employers are the one knocking on employees' doors and reaching out to them either directly or through LinkedIn, other social media, or through headhunters, uh, and and trying to find the right employee for them. So rather than employer or employees looking for the right employers, employers looking for the right employees. So which is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but it does raise some legal issues that we need to talk about, at least with respect to these employees that are going to be recruited away from a job that they're, they've had for a while. It, it's funny. I mean, obviously, you're not you're not a job recruiter. That's not your that's not your gig. But have you have you noticed in your practice people coming to you based on a lot of things that are happening over social media? Because that's made it easier for both parties to reach out and try to pluck employees from other places, right? You mentioned LinkedIn and, and Indeed and places like that. That had an effect for you. Well, absolutely. And and yeah. you know, by the way, I've had uh, other law firms try to recruit some of my lawyers through LinkedIn. I've recruited other lawyers that way. And, and clients tell me often that, uh, yes, they, they're being contacted by uh, recruiters or employers through LinkedIn or other measures. And if you think about it, it's a very powerful tool. If you want to know who works for your biggest competitor, you just go on LinkedIn and read all their bios and you can contact them directly. So, yeah, it is a tool that allows employers now to be much more proactive and look for that right candidate, for sure. Again, talking about recruiting employees from another job, especially if you're an employer, this is a pretty important segment to uh, to catch for sure. So what happens if the employee leaves the old job, joins a new company, and then, uh-oh, a month later, out you go? So this is kind of the, the key here. You know, We're talking about legal issues that happen of, as a result of being recruited away from a, a job that you've had. So if you're leaving a job, you're leaving a secure job, let's say you've been there for a bunch of years, well, you've built some equity there in that job, right? That means that if you were to lose that job, if they were to let you go, you'd be entitled to a bunch of severance. Hmm. Well, what happens if you leave that job? Well, you're potentially risking something. You're giving up that seniority. Well, the law recognizes that. And because of that, what the law says is that if you're recruited away from a secure job, you're not looking to leave, you're not asking to leave, you're not shopping your resume, they came to you. They asked you to leave, they convinced you. So you left that secure job, you went to another company, but things didn't work out. They let you go at some point, you know, after the in the first, let's say, couple of years. Well, what that means is now you're going to be owed enhanced severance. Severance that recognizes your time with the first company. So I'll give you an example. 10 years, you've been working for 10 years with this one company, you're not shopping your resume, but the second company comes to you and they convince you to leave. They contact you and they say, you know what, we want you really to join our company and you agree and you go. A year later, things don't work out, they let you go. So now you're going to get severance, of course, but do you get severance as a one-year employee? No, you're not. Because you had that 10 years before, you were induced to leave that secure job so now you should be getting severance like an 11-year employee, 10 years with the previous company and one year with the new company. And that means you, you could be have worked for a company for a few months, but get 12 months, 18 months, even 24 months severance because they recognize that time with the previous company. So that's important for both employers and employees to remember that there's that enhanced severance for employees that were recruited from a secure job. I can imagine as as an employer without this knowledge and hasn't you know listened to the show or reached out to you 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 hire somebody that's uh, you know coming from a place that's been there for twenty five years it lasts a few months man what a rude awakening you're in for when it comes to severance right oh absolutely it happens by the way a lot more often than you realize it's a Whoa. fairly common situation and anytime John I, I someone contacts me that's worked for a company for a short period of time one of the first questions I'm going to ask them is. How did you end up working for this company? Did you apply there or were you recruited from uh, your job? And probably half the time now, they tell me I was recruited. Now we're looking potentially at enhanced severance. So, John, that's even 
another reason why it's so vital to get legal advice if you lose your job because you could be eligible for this enhanced severance. Many people are, but we need to properly talk about it and assess it. And we'll continue doing that after a short break. Give you some time to uh, relax. Recruiting employees from another job. They're already stable, but you want them. Well, there uh, could be some consequences to it. We'll discuss more of those on the other side of the break. Yeah, 416-870-6400 to call in. This is the Employment Law Show. Hang on. We're going to be talking about recruiting from another job after we get through some calls. Hi, Pam. Good morning. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for taking well the well. time. Yeah, we're loving it. So what's, uh, what's on your mind? So in... Regards to what Leo mentioned about enhanced severance being possible if you are poached away from one job to go to another, does your new job contract have to read a certain way in order for you to be, in order to qualify for the enhanced severance that he mentioned? Great question. Well, it's an excellent question. In fact, it was it was going to be the thing we were going to talk yeah. about next. So the answer is that what you don't want the contract to do is to limit, to actively limit your entitlements. It doesn't have to say something to trigger the enhanced severance. You don't. You just don't want it to limit it. So sometimes what employers do is they make a point to to try to have a term that limits all your future severance. So if they've done that effectively, then you're not going to get the enhanced severance. The good news is that even in situations where the employer has tried to do that, they've put in a term to try to limit entitlements, they haven't done that good enough. In order for that to limit entitlements, it has to be drafted in a very, very specific way. And probably 80% of the time, employers uh, don't get that right. So chances are that it doesn't limit entitlements, but obviously to dot our I's and cross our T's, we'd have to look at the employment agreement. Should the new employment agreement be looked at by someone like yourself before it's signed if one is in a situation where one has been poached away? Like So always, even if someone is not poached away, in every situation where someone accepts a new job, you, you have to get that employment agreement reviewed. It's so vital, and oftentimes you can negotiate away terms that could cost you tens of thousands of dollars. But that need to have the employment agreement reviewed is that much more necessary, that's that much more important when you are being recruited away because you're leaving a secure job. You don't want to leave that job and give up your rights completely and start from scratch and put yourself at a major risk with that new employer. So, yes, it is absolutely vital, Pam, to have that employment agreement reviewed, especially if you've been recruited from another job. Mm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Pam. Really appreciate the call. And if you want to have a uh, further discussion with one of Lior's uh, amazing crew, you can do so. one 821 5900 is how you go forward doing, uh, doing that. Hi, William. How are you this morning? The uh, question is, can an employee who's being recruited from another company strongly ask for a, con- a fixed-term contract? Hmm. A-, a-, a fixed-term contract? Yes, let's say three years, five years. Well, I mean, I think you're asking me as to whether or not the employer is going to agree, and I really can't say that. But generally speaking, uh, even with a fixed-term contract, that doesn't necessarily mean that it benefits the uh, the employee because it's a question of whether or not the employer has given themselves an early exit from that contract. So, yes, you can do a fixed-term contract, but frankly, I would prefer – 
that the employee, uh, if I'm advising the employee to have an indefinite employment with no termination clause and trust the law to provide them with good entitlements in the event that uh, that something happens. Chances are that if the employer agrees to a three or four or five year contract, they're going to give themselves an early exit anyway. So I don't know that that's really going to be of, of much benefit to the employee. William, appreciate the call. You know, we have Pam called in and just kind of raised some uh, some concerns for the employee walking through the doors if they're recruited. How does that employer, what are some other ways an employer can protect themselves if things kind of go south, especially as we mentioned before, if they got someone who's, you know, 10, 15, 25-year employee they're bringing on and recruited, right? Well, honestly, the, the main way, the, the most effective way to do that is with a proper employment agreement. If you're the employer, right, you want to have a term in there that addresses future termination entitlements. You, I would go a step beyond that. Again, if I'm the employer in that scenario and have a term that says, just so we're clear, okay, you're not going to get any credit for any past service with the previous company. I would put that in there to, to protect myself as an employer. Now, the, that, that's what I would do as an employer for the mm. employee. Obviously, as I was saying to Pam, you want to watch out for this. You're, don't want to leave a secure job, by the way, to be put on probation. That's another way an employer can protect themselves by putting that employee on probation when they start. You don't want to put yourself or or agree to be on probation. You don't want to agree to something that limits your future severance. You don't want to take that risk on your shoulders if you were convinced to leave a secure job. You know, if the employer wants you that badly, right, and they came to you, knocked on your door, they should bear the risk, not you, the employee. Right. But for an employer... Yeah, if you're recruiting someone and you're not using a properly drafted employment agreement, man or man, are you exposed? And what you said there, you know, they they should shoulder the risk that they're coming to you to pull you into their fold. And by by that reasoning, you should have if if one of those clauses are in this employment agreement, you should have some bargaining power because they're coming to you, right? You don't need this. Absolutely. Job. Yes, exactly. And and you know, I think these days employees have a lot more bargaining power than they realize. But that is especially true. If they came to you, they said, wow, look at this person's credentials. That's the person we want. Let's go, let's go get him. Well, you know what? If you're in that scenario, you have some bargaining power. You have some leverage to negotiate favorable terms or at least to get rid of bad terms. But, you know, it, it's, there's still this perception, John, when someone looks at an employment agreement, well, let me look at the salary. Oh, good. They pay me a good salary. I really wanted five weeks vacation. They gave me that. Great. So I'm happy. Let me sign. Well, mm-hmm. no. Not so fast. There are other terms in that employment agreement that could be equally, if not more important than exactly what your salary is and how much vacation you get, like a termination term that at some point can cost you tens or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, or a term that allows the company to put you on a layoff, or a term that allows the company to change your job and compensation. So very, very important to understand you have leverage to negotiate these terms. You should negotiate, but it starts off by getting some advice to understand what those terms actually are. So I'm the employer, I'm the company, and I decided to use a headhunter and uh, let them go out and, and, and get some employees. So, so they found someone, they've recruited someone, they're bringing them over. Um, they didn't tell me that this person that I've just hired has a 30-year history with a prior company, which I post them from. What happens? Yeah, and, and, and you know, you may know that they've been with the company, the previous company, for 30 years, but what you may not know is whether this person reached out to the recruiter or if the recruiter reached out to them, mm-hmm. right? Because if this person reached out to the recruiter, well, then this inducement thing that we've been talking about doesn't apply. 
But if the recruiter knocked on their door and, and poached them, well, well, guess what? Then you are, as the employer, you're liable for this enhanced severance because this recruiter is your agent, okay? This recruiter acts for you. So even though you may not be the one that's knocked on the door and convinced the employee to leave it was your a recruiter, it still doesn't matter. So it's important to ask the recruiter the question, hey, how did this person connect with you? Did they come to you? Did you go to them? Understand that issue. And of course, use properly drafted employment agreements every single time, especially if you don't even know how the person ended up uh, at your company because you didn't recruit them, they came through someone else, make sure you do that. And for an employer not to do that, very irresponsible. But again, looking at from the perspective of the employee, when it comes to employment agreements, of course, for the employee, less is always more. Let's wrap it up with a quick email. Fred says, morning, guys. I was suspended without pay, and the company won't tell me when I go back to work. Is there anything I can do now? Yeah, a suspension without pay is not legal. You can't be suspended no. pending an investigation or anything like that unless it's with pay. If an employer suspends you without pay, you can make the decision to consider that a constructive dismissal. You don't have to accept that. You can consider it a constructive dismissal and require the company to pay you severance. Now, if they suspend you for one day, it may not be as big a deal. But if it's something longer, you have that option. Give me a call. And that is a wicked Saturday morning of information right there. You want to carry on with Lior now, you can always uh, do so. In fact, invited to do so. And uh, 1-855-821-5900 is how you do that. You can go to help at employmentlawyer.ca through email and that website. Use it. Get on there. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Have access to the severance calculator while you're there. We'll catch you next time in the Employment Law Show. Enjoy your weekend.